stop all mandates immediately. Uh, pull the vaccines off the market and do a full safety review with independent critical event committee, independent day safety monitor board, and human ethics committee. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I am joined by an amazing guest, Dr. Peter McCullough. He is a cardiologist, he's a physician, he is an expert in uh, COVID-19 analysis and medical responses. And he's one of the first doctors to speak the truth boldly and unapologetically, regardless of the censorship that we're experiencing around the globe right now. And I feel really honored and privileged to have you on. So thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Now, I really wanted to sort of start off by your journey. Um, and I know who you are, and I'm guessing most of my audience are probably familiar with who you are. But if you don't mind sort of sharing a bit about who you are and your background for those who might sort of be catching up to us, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be on the program. I've just come off being on Joe Rogan, uh, and many young podcasters like yourself aspire uh, to be at some point in time, uh, maybe at his st stature. So I think you certainly are in line to do that. Um, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist. I'm also trained in epidemiology. I'm in uh, practice in Dallas, Texas at a large academic medical center. I spend about half my time seeing patients as I handled some patient issues this morning, had patients yesterday. And then other, the other half as an author and editor and uh, clinical investigator, for the last two years, I've spent a lot of time actually as a news media commentator. Uh, mm -hmm. I've testified in the U.S. Senate twice now, multiple state senates and other houses of governance. And um, I have uh, completely dedicated my academic work now since the onset of the pandemic towards uh, fighting SARS-CoV-2, the virus, innovating and coming up with approaches of how to treat the illness to avoid hospitalization and death, which are the two bad outcomes. And I've had a careful eye on vaccine safety and efficacy. And for those reasons, um, my opinions have been sought all over the world. And I have to tell you, probably half of my emails come from Australia. So Australia is on the national radar screen as a distressed region for COVID-19. We certainly are in a very bleak situation at the moment. We've been locked in our homes for two years. Um, at the, currently at the moment, there's still mask mandates for myself in my particular state of Australia. Um, there was a particular time when I wasn't allowed more than five kilometers from my residential address unless I sought permission from my health officials and government um, to do so. And if they deemed it to not be essential, then... I had to be stuck at home. We also have had um, vaccine mandates roll around the country. We're seeing a few of our states in Australia now mandate the booster shot, the third shot. Um, and so, yeah, it seems pretty bleak. I'm glad that we're on an international sort of radar because I feel we feel a little bit helpless. And I know our doctors over here are feeling the same way. Um, you, you mentioned that you went on Joe Rogan and um, I did see a tweet that you put up um, 
in relation to some of the conversations you had with him. And you sort of said that now is the time to bring it on for doctors to sort of stand up and to sort of come together. And I think Australian doctors in particular need to hear that and need to hear that message because they're getting um, suspended from practicing medicine for their political views. Um, I have a friend who went to the doctor asking for an exemption to not get the vaccine because there's a family history of heart disease and concern. And the doctor said, I don't want you to get the vaccine, but I can't put that on paper and I can't give you an exemption. So there's a gag order on all our doctors. So is there a message that you want to send to Australian doctors and, and even, I guess, the bigger picture doctors around the world? Yeah, the doctors have an oath uh, and it's called the Hippocratic Oath. And it supersedes uh, the government. Uh, it supersedes uh, government opinion on licensure. It supersedes uh, all other factors that could potentially um, bring to bear on the doctor-patient relationship. And the Hippocratic Oath says, above all, uh, above all else, do no harm. And when a doctor believes the COVID-19 vaccination is going to cause more harm than it could potentially offer as a benefit, the doctor has a duty and an obligation to exempt the patient from vaccination. The doctor can't uh, basically shudder in fear and then let the patient be harmed by the vaccine. Uh, that mm -hmm. simply uh, can't happen. So I, I think there's really two epidemics. There's an epidemic, a viral epidemic that's been uh, here for two years. And then there's actually even a bigger epidemic of fear. And the fear mm -hmm. is driving so much uh, behavior right now and, and so many actions. And I, I can tell you right now, if tomorrow in Australia, we announced all mandates are being dropped, everything's being dropped, return to normal, and just treat uh, the occasional high-risk patient with COVID-19, there would be a national holiday in Australia. There would be a relief. If you were to ask somebody, uh, what creates the most anxiety in your life? Um, is it COVID-19 the illness or is it the pandemic response? I think it, the answer is a pandemic response. I would agree. I think at the moment, um, the behavior of even our citizens over here shows just how much fear the government and our health officials are propagating. Um, we have the police getting up to 5,000 phone calls per day of neighbors um, snitching and calling on neighbors for not social distancing or wearing their masks or having visitors to their house that they might not you know, be allowed to technically have. So it's very challenging over here. Um, and we're getting censored as soon as we have these discussions. We, you know, our accounts get shut down. Our government is sort of all over us. Um, are you experiencing a similar kind of censorship in America where you are? None of that. You know, I live in the great state of Texas. Uh, Texas is uh, the only state that was its own country at one point in time about, uh, for about 10 years, the Republic of Texas. In fact, I'm a graduate of Baylor University, that's the oldest university in Texas. It was founded during the period of the Independent Republic of Texas. Uh, we've had none of that. Uh, we've been open all the way through. We don't wear masks uh, outside. We don't wear masks into restaurants or public uh, settings at all. Uh, we don't have people calling one another regarding wearing a mask or, or where they're going. Uh, we, we treat COVID-19 as it comes up. Uh, Texas, uh, you know, it's, a, it's quite a varied place. It's a, it's a large state. Some cities uh, like Amarillo would be similar to your Adelaide, uh, for instance. Uh, we don't have uh, anything as beautiful as, as Melbourne or, or Sydney, uh, but we've got big working cities, you know, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin. 
And, um, you know, it's really at the lifeblood of all of this is just reasonableness. We just handle COVID-19 as it comes up. Our hospitals have never been overwhelmed. Turns out we're about middle of the pack. We're about right in about 24, 25 in terms of number of cases of COVID-19 out of 50 states. And we're about middle of the pack on mortality. So uh, many of uh, harken back now to the great Barrington Declaration that was uh, written by uh, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, Martin Koldoff from Harvard, and Sunitra Gupta from uh, Oxford, which basically said, listen, they looked at all the data after about six months and they said, no lockdowns, uh, no draconian measures whatsoever, just protect the elderly. The Great Barrington was written before the vaccines and said, listen, if there is a safe and effective vaccine, let's go ahead and use it just to protect the seniors. And I was asked recently on the Jimmy Dore show, I just tweeted this out, do I agree with that? And the answer is yes, I agree with everything uh, that was there. I published the first paper on uh, how to treat COVID-19 with using multi-drug protocols, not depending on any single drug. And uh, that just preceded the Great Barrington Declaration. So I, I think historians will look back on these landmark uh, publications, these landmark inflections on thinking and what would have been the most optimal way to proceed in order to avoid the type of situation we're in now, particularly in Australia. Yeah. Would would you also say that um, you're not alone in America in your way of thinking and your response to the pandemic? Um, is there a large group of doctors that are around you that are sort of supportive or are you sort of, um, I guess, the mainstream media would like to classify you as a fringe minority? It's, it's hard for them to do that. I'm the most published person in my field uh, in the world and, and one of the top most published people on COVID-19. I've certainly have given, uh, I think, the most government um, under oath testimony of anybody. So it's yeah. it's hard to it's hard to position me on the fringe. Probably should position me on the center. And there's probably yeah. others yeah. on the fringe. What we know globally is we have the World Council for Health, uh, and that's led by Dr. Tess Lowry out of the UK. That has about 70 organizations under its umbrella. All those organizations are grassroots organizations, and they broadly support uh, treating COVID-19 early and <laughs> are very concerned about vaccine safety and lack of efficacy. In the United States, we have the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, uh, which is chartered in, in virtually every state in the United States and has been around since 1943, fully supports early treatment, very concerned about vaccine safety and efficacy. We have the American Frontline Doctors, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, Truth for Health, Foundation, Unity Health. So there's a lot of organizations out there in the United States uh, that basically say, listen, we can treat COVID-19. Uh, we're concerned the vaccines aren't working and they're not safe. In America, are these early preventative um, drugs and things available still to patients? Because in Australia, we actually had our governing body over here ban the use of certain um, medications like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. I think that's how you pronounce it. I apologize if it's not. Um, but they're actually not available to us. It's actually an illegal drug now for us, even though it's been on our prescribed medications for a long time. Are you experiencing this? Um, in America, or is, again, it's very different? You know, it, my very first publication on this uh, never committed to a single drug. I, I don't think any mm. single drug is necessary nor sufficient. And it was always about four to six drugs in a combination uh, we use uh, now. Uh, we, we rely on mainly over-the-counter agents. With the Omicron outbreak, it's a very mild syndrome. 
It's uh, far less invasive than prior versions. So we really don't need systemic drugs in very many cases. So the, the most important is actually uh, nasal and oral washes with either dilute povidone iodine or dilute hydrogen peroxide. Because uh, the Omicron virus doesn't really invade the body <coughs> with any uh, degree, that um, the virus is basically in the nasal passages. So it's not well treated with pills anyway. So the way to do this is to have 10% povidone iodine, which is standard betadine, buy it, buy it online. The United States is about $5 for a big bottle half a teaspoon in a shot glass of water, about 1.5 ounces, and then using a spray bulb or a spray bottle over the sink, spray it up the nose, sniff it all the way back and spit it out, do it twice on each side and gargle with the rest. That's a thorough nasal wash. There are now 12 supportive studies, including one large high quality randomized trial showing it really works. This is probably the most effective thing that one can do to prevent COVID-19 and then treat oneself after exposure. And then with active treatment, this can be done four times a day. Now, if, um, if the iodine isn't tolerated, there's allergies or a hyperfunctioning thyroid problem or pregnant, we can use uh, hydrogen peroxide. It comes as a 3% solution. The dilution is a little bit different. It's about three quarters of a teaspoon in a shot glass of water, same procedure. If either one of these stings make it more dilute. So we start out with the uh, nasal oral washes and then over-the-counter supplements they have an evidence base. They're not curative, but they're helpful, including zinc, 50 milligrams a day, vitamin D3, 5,000 international units a day prevention. We up it to uh, 20,000 units a day temporarily for treatment. Vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams a day for treatment. Quercetin, 500 milligrams a day prevention. Uh, once a day, twice a day for treatment. And then we add an over-the-counter antacid antihistamine called famotidine. Uh, that's 80 milligrams a day, higher than we normally uh, use on the uh, package um, box. But those six things are basically an early treatment kit for Australia. You know, people email me all the time or they contact me through uh, Instagram and other services. And I know Australians are doing this. They're doing basically, it's called the McCullough Protocol. They're doing the very top part of the McCullough protocol called the OTC bundle, and it's working fabulously. Now, I just had someone in Australia, a senior citizen, get a monoclonal antibody infusion. So it turns out monoclonal antibody infusions are next for our high-risk seniors. The featured ones now are one by GlaxoSmithKline called Sotorivimab, and now there's a new one that's just been EUA approved uh, by Lilly that will be on the market. These are targeted towards parts of the spike protein that are not subject to mutation. So high-risk seniors can get monoclonal antibodies. Then we can move into the box with antivirals. And you mentioned hydroxychloroquine, supported by 300 studies, but a modest benefit, about 25% benefit. Um, ivermectin, supported by over 70 studies, a greater benefit, about a 70% benefit. But now we've got a new mm -hmm. Pfizer drug called Paxlovid that has over an 80% clinical benefit, new Merck drug, molopiravir, 30% clinical benefit. We add uh, azithromycin or doxycycline because there are there is an overlap with other uh, organisms. It was called atypical organisms and bacteria. And then we use uh, inhaled budesonide supported by the STOIC trial, over 80% clinical benefit there. Uh, oral prednisolone or dexamethasone or hydrocortisone, you have those available in Australia. Uh, oral colchicine, have that in Australia. Aspirin over-the-counter in Australia. Australia, 325 milligrams a day. And then lastly, we're just down to the use of anticoagulants. It could be some high-risk patients with wheelchairs, bed-bound individuals that will use subcutaneous uh, blood thinners or oral blood thinners. That's called sequence multidrug therapy for COVID-19. All the real-world outcome studies show 
that about 85% reductions in hospitalizations and death. And I think with the monoclonal antibodies now and the new Merck and Pfizer drugs, we could get to 95% pre prevention in high-risk seniors for hospitalization and death. So therapeutics is a huge, mm. rest assured, whether they took the vaccine or not, if they get sick with COVID-19 and they have severe symptoms, uh, they can be treated. And Australians are being treated. Mm. That It's very interesting because... I guess mainstream media over here and like what we're being told from our state premiers and our um, prime minister over here yeah. is the vaccine is the cure. That's all you need. If you, if you line up to get it, um, that's basically the messiah of the medical world. That's what we're being shown over here. Unless we're looking elsewhere, like to people like yourself, unless we're already awake and we're kind of looking at alternative sources, that's what we're being told. And now we're being told that the efficacy of the vaccine has gone from six months to three months. And now it's gone from one shot to two shots to three. And now in the state of Victoria, they're talking about a fourth shot now and in Western Australia, fourth shot. So we're, we're over here. That's sort of what we're being told. Now you've spoken out quite, um, uh, I guess, plainly about the vaccine and your thoughts about the vaccine, the efficacy, the statistics. Are you able to share a little bit about that with my audience now? Yeah, sure. <laughs> we always talk about new um, medications and therapeutics with safety first. Then we talk about efficacy because if they're not safe, it doesn't matter how good they are, we're not gonna use them. I think everyone right. agrees. So a standard in the United States, we have 330 million people. If we get to five deaths after any product, it gets a black box warning, says may cause death. If we get to 50 deaths as a regulatory uh, practice, uh, the drug is pulled off the market. It's just, it doesn't matter if the product causes the death or not. If it occurs within a tight time frame, we can't tell uh, it's pulled off the market. And there've been over a hundred drugs pulled off the market that were initially thought to be safe. Um, in preparation for this interview, uh, I did my own data query, my own query, and I'll stand behind it in our uh, CDC adverse event reporting system, uh, <coughs> which is voluntary reporting for perceived side effects after the COVID-19 vaccines. And uh, this is, uh, we know 86% of the time it's done by doctors, nurses, or other healthcare personnel. 14% of the time by the patient or the patient's family. So I did my own query and I specifically queried on the checkbox, the initial checkbox on the VARES form for death. So it's COVID-19 and then death. And so let me re read you the report. Um, and this is my own query. I'll stand behind it. Anyone can do this on the internet with some training. The number of deaths uh, as of today reported to the CDC uh, after COVID-19 vaccination where the checkbox says death is 12,670. Uh, with Pfizer, it's 6,035. Moderna, 5,200. Johnson & Johnson, 1,391. And unknown, where they don't know which vaccine was received, 44 cases. I went over to the OpenVAERS data overlay. So the OpenVAERS data overlay is a query <coughs> that overlies VAERS and it's, uh, it's maintained privately and it's updated once a week. Now it, search for, it searches for the word death or mortality anywhere through the vignette, anywhere on the form. So it's not specifically the checkbox, but it could pick up additional deaths. As of February 4th, OpenVAERS has 23,615 deaths in it. I can tell you just from a death perspective with no other analysis, 
because we haven't had any independent um, data safety monitoring board or critical event committee even review these. I can tell you right now, uh, the vaccines are not sufficiently safe for use. There is a massive question regarding mm -hmm. death. Now, when we put in that there's over a thousand vaccine injuries in the open bears system, we have over 40,000 uh, permanent disabilities, over 30,000 cases of heart injury, myocarditis. Mm -hmm. We have um, uh, uh, scores of, <coughs> of non-fatal and fatal vaccine uh, injury syndromes that are published in the peer-reviewed literature. So in the uh, preprint server system in the National Library of Medicine, we have uh, roughly a thousand papers. I checked today, we have 246 papers on COVID vaccine induced myocarditis, including fatal cases. I provided commentary on fatal cases published in uh, an esteemed pathology journal yesterday. Two young men took the Pfizer uh, vaccine uh, and they died at home uh, a few days later. They didn't even have a chance for resuscitation. They had autopsies done and the examination of the heart confirmed myocarditis. There are fatal cases uh, additionally reported in the United States and from Choi and colleagues from Korea. No vaccine, I don't care how, it, how good it is, should be causing fatal myocarditis published in the peer-reviewed literature. That's unacceptable. And I recently testified in the US Senate on January 24th, 2022, that one case was too many, one case, and they are pouring in. Yeah, wow. It's, um, it's very alarming. It, like I'm, I'm sort of in shock with those numbers. That's terrible. Has this happened before in history, like with a vaccine? Like what, what's the normal protocol if these numbers are coming out with adverse reactions and, and mortality rates? There's a recent example, the swine flu uh, pandemic, the US uh, attempt to try to vaccinate the whole country. We had 220 million people in the country. We vaccinated 55 million, about 25% of the US population. We got to 25 deaths and 550 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome paralysis. And there was a decision with no Twitter, no internet, no VAERS system, shut down the program, not safe. The deaths mm -hmm. rose to 53. Uh, apologies were made and reparations were made to the patient's families. So yeah, we do have a precedent and the precedent again is about mm -hmm. 50. Uh, we know with all vaccines combined in the United States, 278 million shots that uh, there's no more than 150 deaths that get reported to the system. We're at about 220 million shots with the US vaccine program. And the numbers I reported to you, if the open VAERS system, which is conservative, is picking up death as described mm -hmm. in the clinical vignettes at 23,000, uh, that is astronomical. Uh, there yeah. is, uh, an, an, and we know it's a gross underreporting. The question is, you know, how many more deaths could there be? A paper by mm -hmm. Pantazatos and Seligman from Columbia in the preprint server system, the ResearchGate preprint server system, same one that the National Institutes of Health uses, paper under review for publication. They used uh, US census data and uh, vaccine administration data to ascertain that the number really could be 187,000 Americans have died uh, within 20 weeks of receiving the vaccine. So the, the, <laughs> the safety here is, is not acceptable. It's grossly unsafe. A small French group originally in March saw the trends and worldwide called for shutting down the uh, worldwide vaccine program 
Bruno and colleagues. I'm in that author block, 57 authors, 17 countries. We published in May that if the countries could not get safety review boards in place and immediately come up with corrective actions, the vaccines should be pulled off the market. And then the evidence-based consulting group in the UK in June with a, you know, over a dozen, two dozen page report to the MHRA, which is the equivalent of the TGA in uh, England, uh, submitted their formal recommendation, pull the vaccines off the market, not safe. So the world has been warned now uh, very strongly that data are very clear, they're consistent. Uh, the United States data in our VAERS system is consistent with the yellow card data in the UK and the, and the UDRA system. And, and so in fact, recently on um, the uh, Joe Rogan interview, I went through what's called the Bradford Hill uh, tenets of causality. You know, what are the criteria for causality? So the first mm -hmm. criteria is that there's a dangerous mechanism of action. The vaccines install the genetic material uh, that cause a mosaic of cells in the body, including critical areas, the brain, the heart, kidneys, blood vessels, bone marrow, to produce a dangerous spike protein, the spike protein on the surface of the virus. That spike protein is now known to exist in the human body probably for over a year after vaccination, both the S1 and S2 segment. A recent uh, preclinical paper by Hultgen and colleagues shown the messenger RNA itself is found in the lymph nodes for months afterwards. This is not a transient type of therapy at all. Mm. It's, it's an installation in the human body. So there's a dangerous mechanism of action and it's prolonged. Uh, number, that's number one. Number two, it's a very strong signal. We've never seen deaths like this after any yeah. form of vaccine, nothing close to this. Uh, number three, that uh, it is, uh, uh, when analyzed in terms of its vignettes, uh, it was analyzed by McLaughlin and colleagues by Queens early in April. They found 86% of the time by coding and analyzing the vignettes independently that there was no other explanation outside of the vaccine. So the direct review in implicates the vaccine. It's internally consistent, meaning we see all these other non-fatal uh, uh, events that could be fatal, like heart attacks, strokes, myocarditis, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, bleeding, uh, what's called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, which can be fatal. So all the, the uh, uh, non-fatal events are internally consistent. It's externally consistent, meaning the same pattern is in the uh, UK yellow card system, uh, as well as the UDRA system. Then the last criteria would be if we have enough randomized trial data, which now with Pfizer, with the extension, Pfizer, there's 21 deaths with Pfizer and 17 with placebo. So in the randomized trials. So we have mm -hmm. fulfilled all the Bradford Hill criteria for causality. I mean, as we sit here today, I can tell you, I'm convinced as an epidemiologist, the vaccines are causing the deaths in a large fraction of those who in fact die quickly after the vaccine. It's a very tight temporal relationship. Mm -hmm. That's, I guess, another criteria that 50% <clears throat> of the deaths occur within 48 hours, 80% occur within a week. All the tenants are fulfilled. Yeah. Um... <sighs> With all that in mind, why do you think our Australian government are still mandating it? Do you think that they're aware of this information? Like, what? I'm trying to understand how this is fact and it's just being dismissed. I, I just can't fathom it. You know, th this would boil down to this is the type of question that would come up in a, in a court of law or a review panel. It was like, <laughs> do they know? Or should they know? And, and either yeah. one is not good. So either they know True. or they should know. 
And either one of those is not good. They're running a major program. It's their responsibility Mm. to make sure it's safe. The TGA and the Australian authorities must have it safe for the public. So they either know or they should have known and neither one of those is good. And and, and, and the longer this goes on, the longer this goes on, uh, it's going to become more and more difficult to ever possibly justify this. I feel like if I was to advise um, the the youth, the the next generation of kids coming through, I'd say be a lawyer because there are going to be a lot of medical negligence cases possibly against the government moving forward, and you'll never be out of work if that's what you do, children. Um, but yeah, it's you're right. They either should know or they do know, and both of those scenarios are not good, as you said. And I, I actually wanted to touch base about the myocarditis because we're being told over here that it's a very mild condition that you know once you've had it it's like nothing it's like you go to hospital for a few hours you go home and that it's worth the risk of potentially getting myocarditis as opposed to getting COVID um you're obviously a cardiologist you know what myocarditis is better than I would can you explain that maybe to my viewers because my understanding and my limited understanding is that it's a permanent condition and once your heart enlarges with this condition it can't really return back to normal is that true well let's look at the risk benefit let's say a young person like you <laughs> for for you covid-19 is like a mild cold you're going to have four of these a year drippy nose some sinus congestion. So the risk is very low. Now, if you're unlucky and you get heart damage, you know, there's no comparison in the trade-off. If I was a young person, I wouldn't say, okay, I'll take some heart damage to avoid a cold. I mean, Mm. no one would say that, you know, no one would even risk even, even a single, uh, you know, bit of their heart being damaged in order to avoid a cold. You know, so so that this this trade-off isn't there. So what we know is from the original CDC review in June, there was about 200 cases. 90% of the young people were hospitalized. It was serious. And chest pain, dramatic mm. EKG changes, very high blood tests showing cardiac injury troponin. About a quarter had damaged hearts by echocardiogram and had abnormalities. Uh, then the next review came up by Tracy Hogan, colleagues, University of California, Davis. Uh, they found 86% of young people ages 12 to 17 from VAERS and VSAFE uh, were hospitalized. Again, very serious, 90% in boys, 10% in girls. Um, the Hogan analysis did uh, weigh this out, and a young person would be far more likely to be um, hospitalized with myocarditis and heart damage than ever be hospitalized with COVID-19. It was clear. Then Trong and colleagues recently published from University of Utah and Salt Lake, uh, now about 75% requiring hospitalizations. Of those who went, uh, underwent MRI, uh, well over 90% showed active heart damage. Uh, a paper in the pediatric literature by Shower and colleagues, uh, remarkable, showed that the symptoms can be very subtle, just a fever, just very nonspecific symptoms in these young teenagers. Uh, but in the Shower paper, 100% were having heart damage by MRI. So on the oh. Joe Rogan, experience, uh, Joe said, listen, what's the prognosis? What's the outcome if these kids are going to sustain heart damage? I said, well, of course, we don't know yet. But if we look back in time on other causes of myocarditis, there's a paper by Tishopi and colleagues in circulation research in 2019 that showed about 30% plus have uh, heart damage enough where the heart doesn't rebound completely, but it gets better, proves 
a little bit. And about 13%, it's deep permanent damage. So mm -hmm. I'm very concerned uh, at yeah, this point yeah. in time. We have over 30,000 uh, young people in America. I would not say it's rare and I would not say it's uh, mild. We should be very conservative. We should be very concerned regarding these individuals. I just made a VAERS entry today on a young man. It took him about, about 10 months to have his heart pumping function return to normal. We still don't know the implications of the damage long-term yeah. for him. He's been on heart failure medications. Uh, you know, this is really a catastrophe. Myocarditis is a catastrophe for young people. Rose and myself have published in Current Problems of Cardiology that the risk extends up to uh, age 50. And recently there's been two cases in the literature of men in their 60s with myocarditis. Wow. The numbers, um, and I guess <laughs> the numbers are very telling. Like there's a lot of people who are experiencing these heart conditions. And I guess my question is, what is it in the vaccine that's causing this to happen? I, I don't understand the biology and the science of it, but yeah, what, what it actually is it that's inside the vaccine that triggers that kind of, uh, I guess, outcome? You know, most vaccines that you've taken, let's say you've taken a <coughs> tetanus shot or taken a flu shot or hepatitis B shot, they're typically administration of either uh, a live attenuated virus, uh, such as the chickenpox virus, a, a dead mm -hmm. virus like the flu shot, or an in, in, inactive protein like a, a tetanus shot or the hepatitis B shot, and you respond to it, then largely it stays in the arm. What's unique about these vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca, is that they're loaded on lipid nanoparticles. So the first observation is, and it was shown in papers from China before the vaccine program, the lipid nanoparticles were known to go everywhere in the body. So you give a shot of organs, bone marrow. So the first thing is the vaccine goes everywhere in the body. So that, that, that should be very disconcerting uh, and um, you know, right off the bat. And, and that was known before these vaccines were brought forward. It was known it's gonna go everywhere in the body. The second, thing is they're carrying genetic material. So once the lipid nanoparticles taken up in organs, the genetic material then is taken up by those cells in those organs, and it begins to produce the spike protein. The spike protein is the dangerous part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, 1,200 amino acids. Uh, it is uh, proven in preclinical studies. The spike protein is the lethal part of COVID-19. So we're having the body install the genetic program for our own cells to produce a potentially lethal protein. And that lethal protein is proven to damage heart muscle cells. It damages the pericytes. A paper by Avolio and colleagues have shown this. It mm. uh, directly damages uh, neurologic tissue. It uh, directly uh, damages the bone marrow. It causes blood vessel damage and clotting. Paper by multiple papers by mm. Zeng and myself have shown this. So this is well understood in the, in the literature. So yeah. this is a tremendous gamble. The gamble of using lipid nanoparticles and installing a genetic program to produce a lethal protein and then have the body survive the lethal protein in order to try to gain immunity is an incredibly risky biological um, program. And so yeah. those who dreamed it up knew or should have known they were taking extraordinary risks with the people taking the vaccine. And this particular uh, spike protein like reaction and, and what we're doing, is this the first sort of vaccine that has this technology? Yes. Right. Okay. Because, yeah, I've, I served over here for 12 years and I had to have my hep B and I had to have all of that. Um, this is all new to me. Um, 
learning about how this vaccine works in comparison to other ones. It's really fascinating. I actually read a paper, I think it maybe came out of Israel. Um, and apologies, I, I honestly can't remember the name of it or anything, but they were talking about the spike protein and they tested it on rats and they found that the spike protein within 15 minutes went to the ovaries and the testes of the rats. Um, and they obviously, the conclusion of this particular paper was they don't know what it actually means. It could mean nothing. It could mean something, but there have been a lot of questions around fertility and whether this vaccine and the spike protein can affect that. Do you have any information on that particular um, subject? I think the paper you're referring to is a um, biodistribution study done by Pfizer for the Japanese right. regulatory authorities. And it has been translated to English and verified. And what they demonstrated, Pfizer demonstrated the lipid nanoparticles alone in animals did hyper-concentrate in the ovaries. Uh, in fact, the right. ovaries were the only gland that were hyper-concentrating while the mm. other uh, organs were washing the, the lipid nanoparticles out. And we know separately from a paper from China in 2019 that uh, the ovaries and the testes would take up the lipid nanoparticles. Mm. In fact, it's been described as potentially a delivery mechanism. So the lipid nanoparticles in drug development have been around a while, as well as messenger RNA and adenoviral DNA. But the thought was always, could they deliver a normal gene that producing a normal deficient protein or something beneficial? They've never been designed to deliver the genetic code for something harmful. And boy, right. are we seeing the harm. Mm. So there's great concern regarding fertility. The first data that we have on abortions and miscarriages uh, that mm. came out was from the Department of Defense. So in the January 24th, 2022 US Senate panel titled uh, COVID-19, a second opinion, we had over a dozen practicing doctors, PhD scientists, uh, uh, nurses, patients, lawyers. And one of the lawyers who presented it was uh, Tom Rents and co-counsel Lee Dundas presented the Department of Defense uh, 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 epidemiology database, which is a clinical occurrence database kept by the US military. And three whistleblowers uh, agreed to be named the lead whistleblowers, Lieutenant Colonel Teresa Long is one of the uh, you know, top flight surgeons in the United mm. States. And that data showed year on year from 2016 up to 2020, and then 2021 being the vaccine year, a yeah. large and substantial increases in abortions and miscarriages. And so that's yeah. going to be of our female military members. So, uh, you know, I can tell you the military data, which is now under subpoena by Senator Ron Johnson, I think will really tell the story. It showed multi multifold increase yeah. in neurologic, yeah. cardiac, immunologic, and hematologic disease across the board. Yeah. Uh, like I, I have people in my own life personally who um, have miscarried within a week or two after having the vaccine. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I've also seen a mother um, hold off getting the vaccine and then wait until she'd given birth. And then she had her baby um, and then started breastfeeding and the baby came out with all rashes head to toe, got sent to hospital. Um, and so there's just so much unknown at the moment. There's so much risk, it, it would seem. And there's so much evidence of things like, and I, you know, I'm, I have a small group of friends and a small circle of people around me and they're things that I'm seeing with my own eyes. So I can't imagine the global scale. And when all of this comes to fruition, like what we're actually going to see. But what I wanted to really get your thoughts on is, children and the vaccine. Because in Australia, we have got 
over 90% of our kids 12 to 16 vaccinated and now they're doing 5 to 11-year-olds and we're apparently over 73% for 5 to 11-year-olds and now there's like rumours circulating in the mainstream media that they want to start giving it to our six-month-year-old babies. Um, This terrifies me. Um, It it worries me, one, because of the fertility issue that we mentioned, like young girls, our ovaries are formed in our mother's wombs. That's something we carry with us for the rest of our lives. So, you know, once the damage is done, like it, it terrifies me what could potentially happen in the future. And again, the heart conditions, I'm not sure whether that's something that we need to worry about five to 11 year olds or whether it's more that, um, teen sort of phase, but I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on, on children and, and this particular vaccine. Again, we, you know, the comments should always be levered on safety. If it's not safe, it shouldn't be done. So we have data from uh, House and colleagues published in MMWR, the CDC journal, December 31st, uh, 2021, clearly showing the vaccines were not safe ages five to 11. Uh, And in one of the safety tables, they had 100 serious adverse events. And of those, 15% were elevations in cardiac troponin. Uh, But I think uh, 10% had abnormal echocardiograms. I can tell you there's heart damage occurring now in children below the age of puberty. We've never seen this before. And even even community myocarditis, which can happen with parvovirus or adenovirus or, um, you know, idiopathic, uh, even that is almost always after puberty. Paper by Arolia and colleagues from Finland showed that. So I can tell you, I'm deeply disturbed. I I don't think uh, they're safe. Uh, they have not been demonstrated to be beneficial. So in children across the board, the randomized trials showed no reductions in hospitalization and death because they don't Mm. get severe disease. Uh, We have data now across the board that the vaccines have failed to stop COVID-19. So if you've vaccinated that degree of of individuals, uh, (coughs) children, adolescents, and adults, uh, your epidemic curves are out of control. And so it's, it's obvious that large numbers of those who have taken the vaccines are still getting COVID. And we know that uh, because in the US now, a paper by Luand and colleagues from uh, University of California, uh, Berkeley School of Public Health, as well as the original CDC communication, demonstrated that over 70% of those uh, sick with COVID-19 are fully vaccinated. The data are the same in the UK, Denmark, Germany, South Africa, mm-hmm. and Israel. So the vaccines obviously don't work. They don't stop COVID-19. And um, we have an a, a analysis from Singarajam and colleagues published in Lancet showing 39% of all the transmission by uh, case contact study is from fully vaccinated to fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's simply not tractable to suggest that someone take a vaccine. It doesn't prevent covid uh, we don't have uh, any randomized uh, trial data suggesting it reduces hospitalization or death. And I think in the United States, what we've seen is uh, some analyses that are both biased and confounded. Um, and the analysis have concluded that hospitalizations are lower among the vaccinated. But I think the reason why they're not valid are the following, that they're not randomized. So the only way to really know is if they're randomized, healthier people tend to take the vaccine anyway. Um, and so we know there's selection bias there's also differential testing bias. In the United States, uh, those who are vaccinated tend not to get tested. Those who are unvaccinated, this are not adjudicated. So we've had public health officials come out and say 40 to 60% of 
the hospitalizations are uh, not due to COVID. So, uh, so we don't even know if they're there for the respiratory illness. Mm. Uh, and then uh, finally, we don't have ascertainment of who's actually been vaccinated. So because unless the patient produces their vaccine card, there's no linkage to any solid registry. I think there's a lot of assumption that people in the hospital are unvaccinated because no one asks for their vaccine card or the, unless the patient volunteers it forward. So, so it's interesting. In the United States, we've had this vein of the literature showing that hospital, the hospitalizations are reduced among the vaccinated. But in fact, that in other countries that fairly know the status of all these things, again, UK, Israel, other countries, uh, there's never been a sign that um, vaccination reduces hospitalization. So I think it's across the board. I think we have a situation, we have a very poor safety profile and we don't have uh, any convincing evidence of efficacy. And, and as the vaccines have mm -hmm. come along through the legacy variants, uh, we started to have data showing that the vaccines, uh, in fact, even through the legacy variants, these papers came out very late, uh, uh, basically had little or no, um, or no coverage. And I, I think this is uh, important. I wanted to bring up a, a paper making that point. Um, and one of the things that you'll see is you'll see, um, you'll see me cite the literature. This paper's by um, Amadea Britton and colleagues published in JAMA uh, just uh, a few days ago. The title of the paper is Association of COVID-19 Vaccination with Symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 Infection. So this is basically just saying who's got, you know, who's got COVID at home, community COVID. This is what the vaccine should pre uh, prevent. And they had data from March 13th um, uh, all the way through October 17th, 2021 in the United States. They found that 29% um, that, uh, of those with symptomatic COVID-19 were fully vaccinated, 29%. Mm. And as we yeah. shaded in with more Delta and more Omicron, it became even more and more the vaccinated. So the vaccines actually never really stopped the legacy variants, the Wuhan wild type, alpha, beta, gamma, they never really did. Mm. And now uh, I think they're in wholesale failure. There's no credible data right now suggesting the vaccines have any efficacy against the Omicron variant. It's interesting. We just had um, in the state of New South Wales here in Australia, we just had a recent report come out that if you had COVID and you tested positive for COVID and you went into hospital within a month of, of being that, even if you'd recovered, they were marking that as a COVID hospitalization. And even this health official used on as an example, if you tested positive for COVID on day one and on day 14, you were completely cleared of it and you're back into society and then on day 28 you fell over and fell off your bike and broke your leg and you went to hospital for that that would still be classified as a COVID hospitalization because of that time frame and now all of a sudden they've said we're going to change how we're taking in that data and we're going to do it 14 days now but it just goes to show that the statistics like how do we know what's what's real and, and what's not when so much of our mandates, so much of our restrictions, so many people who have lost their jobs, so many people who have gone out and taken the vaccine, even though they didn't want it, was based on those incorrect data statistics. And 
I worked in the police over here. I've had colleagues of mine tell me that the coroner um, has actually disseminated emails to police officers and have said, unless this a particular person has died um, within like hours of getting the vaccine to not fill out a P79A form. And a P79A form is basically a report of death to the coroner, whether it's suspicious, whether it's arson, whether it's a murder, et cetera, et cetera. If it's an unknown death, it goes to the coroner on that particular form. The coroner must have been overwhelmed with lots of notifications from police attending things and unsuspecting unknown deaths of young people or whatever it might be, no underlying health issues. So our Australian, our coroner over here is telling them, no, no, don't report it to me. So I'm getting this information from colleagues that I worked with and I'm just going, how, like, how are we ever going to know the real data from this pandemic? Because I, I don't, I'm not sure if it's the same in America, but Australia, we just seem to be getting it so incredibly wrong, um, even at the data that we're kind of consuming. Yeah, there's a clear pattern, though, in the in the intentional reporting. The pattern is always to overstate the number of cases, uh, to overstate and attribute hospitalization according to vaccine status, uh, and uh, to overstate COVID respiratory illness mortality. So the trend is clear. It's worldwide, by the way. It's worldwide. So whatever's going on is going on in the United States, Canada, UK. It's, it's the same all over. And at the same time, uh, it's clear that the vaccines are presented with no information on vaccine safety, none uh, on safety. And there's clear intention to try to under-report or not report any vaccine safety events. Yeah. And so this is, these trends are clear all over the world. So those who are uh, proposing the vaccines are basically saying they're safe and effective, take them without any question and take them on a regular basis. And those who are promoting the vaccines are saying that, uh, that COVID-19 is a horrendous public health problem and it's gonna continue forever. And that we have to take more and more of these vaccines despite showing no signs that the vaccines are having any worldwide impact. In fact, there's three analyses, one by Subramanian, uh, Camp and Beatty, all showing that the more you vaccinate, the worse it gets. There's more and more cases and more mortality because mm -hmm. the, the virus actually just mutates and becomes more problematic. So where do we go from here? Like where, where do you see this going? And, and what, what, what would you sort of give as your advice to others like moving forward, coming out of this pandemic? And one of the good things that's come out of the pandemic is really the rise of independent media and independent podcast reporting like yours. You know, the other thing that's come out in the United States is uh, very, very large public programs. I've led over two dozen public programs in major cities. We meet with uh, lawmakers, we meet with doctors, and then large public programs going over early treatment, vaccine safety and efficacy, as we did on this podcast. And people come out by the thousands because they know that they've been stonewalled on mm. information on treatment. People just want to get uncensored information. They know right now it's being censored. And uh, so I think those are some of the good things that's come out of it. I, I think the bad things that's come out of it is some people have uh, lost their employment. They've lost their livelihoods. We don't know how long this is going to go for, but they've clearly made informed choices. They don't want to die with the vaccine. So they're willing to take some time off from employment. And it's just going to have to be that way. I mean, if you, if you told somebody, listen, they have to jump out of an airplane without a parachute to keep your job, no one's going to jump out of the airplane. 
So mm. here, everyone's going to be weighing the risks and benefits. I led a program recently in Wichita, Kansas, and we had a, a, a private doctor's meeting. And one of the questions is, what percent of people actually took the vaccines because they thought it was the right health decision? Yeah. And the answer was about 50%. And that means the other 50% took the vaccines, not for any health reason, but they took it because they felt forced into it. They felt like they needed to keep their job for yeah. social reasons. One of the most common questions I get from Australians is, can I take the Novavax? Can mm. I take the Novavax vaccine? Because it's a protein-based vaccine. And uh, and the reason why the, I, I said, is the reason why you're asking that, is it for your health reasons or you just want to take the vaccine to kind of move on for a few months? He said, well, mm. I, I just want to take the vaccine to move on. And so most people actually don't even want it for any perceived health benefits. And Novavax with the legacy variants looked every bit as good as Pfizer and Moderna, 90% vaccine efficacy. And I think it was safer, even though the local reactions were more severe. I think the systemic effects were less. But the issue is now is we have no data with Novavax and uh, Delta or Omicron at all. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, Novavax was the, one of the first companies to announce they, had, they were going to make a new vaccine for Omicron when the Omicron outbreak occurred. So that should tell you something. <laughs> yeah. Novavax leaders think it probably doesn't cover Omicron. The sad thing is the Omicron outbreak is essentially over with now. And so mm -hmm. by the time they have vaccines potentially even ready, uh, they'll need to do large randomized trials. That's gonna take a long time. Uh, you know, they're gonna again be obsolete. So I think the vaccines continue to be obsolete as the vaccine mutate, as the virus mutates. I've always said that the only thing that should sell a medicine or a treatment is the medicine itself. When you're having to take medicine because you've got a basically a gun pointed at your head that you're not going to be able to feed your family or provide something for your kids, a roof over your head, all of these things, um, that's not informed consent, if you ask me. Um, and it, I, I honestly think the numbers are exactly as you say. I know so many people who just took it because they wanted to get on with it, not actually because they thought about the health benefits and the risks, and then they made an actual decision for their health. It's always, I just wanted to go to the pub with my mates. I, I wanted my kid to be able to go and play sport, so I did it. Um, there's always other reasons other than health, and it should never be about that with medicine. That's a very dangerous precedent to set. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid that the government know that they can do this now. What's it going to look like in the future? Um, but my, my, my final and I sort of Last question I want to I want to put to you is knowing what the Australian government are still doing to us Australians, knowing what our state premiers are still doing to us with the restrictions, with the mask mandates, with the vaccine mandates, with all of this. What message would you if you had the opportunity to speak to our prime minister, our state premiers, what would you say to them? I, I just speak to them really as a uh, as a person of authority. I have medical authority. And I have more medical authority than the health officials because I see and examine patients every day. I've done original research, uh, scholarship, I've, uh, I've developed protocols, uh, analyzed more data, provided more commentary than I think than anybody in the, in the world on COVID-19. I've had it myself twice, lost a family member uh, to COVID-19. I know every single aspect of COVID-19. I would tell them very clearly, drop all mandates immediately. Uh, pull the vaccines off the market and do a full safety review with independent critical event committee, independent day safety monitoring board and human ethics committee. Figure out what went wrong in Australia. They should drop all uh, COVID measures immediately and then return to normal and then treat patients as they become ill and have the full breadth of drugs made available and support doctors in treating 
patients with COVID-19. That would be my recipe. I think if that happened, uh, the problem would, uh, all the various problems that are exist in Australia would immediately go away. And I think Australians would cheer. I think there'd be a national mm. holiday. So that, that would be a bold, clear, decisive and effective leadership. So that's what I would uh, inject into Australia, which is grossly missing right now. It certainly is missing. And I mean, if our borders were open, I'd love to invite you here. And I would love to take you to these politicians' houses and have you speak for them. But maybe that's something we can look at doing later once the prison colony has decided to open its borders again. But um, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been so insightful. You're obviously very well read. You're very intelligent. You're all over this stuff. Where can people follow your work? Where can people go? They want to maybe, you know, they hear what we've spoken about today and want to go a little bit further. Have you got anywhere resources that you can point them to? I'm on all the social media platforms. So you can follow me on Twitter at P underscore McCullough MD and, and similar across all the social media platforms. And then you can follow me on America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. I issue a report to the nation every week. I have international guests, uh, music segment. It's very, very uh, popular. And then you certainly can um, uh, uh, follow me and, and, and people interested in protocols. People always ask, you know, where's the treatment protocols? Mm. Where's the McCullough protocol? Go to Truth for Health Foundation, truthforhealth.org and download the home treatment protocols. Uh, lots of information on vaccine safety and efficacy. Lots of opportunity to get involved. And I'd include, uh, encourage Australians and the grassroots organizations to look for the World Council for Health. Uh, I'm a supporter there, uh, but it's led by Dr. Tess Lowry out of the UK. It's an umbrella organization. And uh, Australians are ultimately gonna have to use their voice. I, I don't think the government itself is going to, um, is going to have a sea change and everything's gonna be okay. I think Australians are gonna have to use their voice. They will have to galvanize around freedom as Regina Canadians, Europeans and Americans do. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on. I'd love to talk to you more about a lot of things, but we are reaching on the hour. So yeah, I'm sure my audience are very grateful for the information you've given as well. And yeah, appreciate all the work and, and God bless you in, in your endeavors over in America. Thank you.